Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on February 15, 2017. I'm Steve Mursky. In 1939, with the war in Europe looming, Winston Churchill published a newspaper essay on, of all things, the possibility of extraterrestrial life. Astrophysicist Mario Livio saw the essay last year while visiting the U.S. National Churchill Museum in Fulton, Missouri. That's the site of the Churchill Museum because he made his famous Iron Curtain speech at Westminster College there in 1946. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an Iron Curtain has descended across the continent. Livio was so taken by Churchill's analysis that he wrote a piece about it for the February 16th edition of the journal Nature. Mario Livio is an astrophysicist and author. His upcoming book is called Why? What Makes Us Curious? That'll come out in July. I spoke to Livio earlier today by phone. You know, what's what's fascinating to me is uh, Churchill is thought of as a politician, a lot of people forget that he was a journalist, a wonderful writer. I mean, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature, and that he had a, a great and deep interest in science. Right. And what was amazing to me, in addition, after reading this particular essay, was um, how his logic, his train of thought, is, is just like that of a scientist. I mean, you know, he picks this subject, are we alone in the universe? Namely, you know, is there life out there? And then he progresses point by point. You know, he starts by defining life, then saying, okay, what's necessary for life? He identifies liquid water, which is the same thing that we do today. You know, we say, follow the water. He then says, okay, what does it take to have liquid water? He basically identifies what we call today habitable zone you know, that just right region, which is not too cold, not too hot. Uh, he then looks at the solar system and looks where, where are possible places. He then discusses extrasolar planets. So if I were to write today about this topic in, in, in this way, this would be exactly the way I would write it. And, and, and he just does this, even though, you know, he's not a scientist. Right. You're an astrophysicist, and that's the way you would do it. And he basically takes the same approach. There's a fascinating part of your essay, uh, talking about his essay, where uh, he's considering the formation of planets at the with what was known at the time he's writing. But he's open-minded enough to realize that that current speculation may be incorrect, and that would change the outcome. Right. This was astounding to me, you know. Uh, okay, he had the wrong model. He used the model that James Jeans wrote in 1917, which was, you know, about stars passing near the sun, let's say, and tearing off some material from it and planets forming from that material that was torn off. That model, you know, we know today is, is, is the wrong model for planet formation. He then, you know, looks at what is the probability for that happening a lot. And he, you know, concludes that it wouldn't happen a lot, which is true. Uh, from which one might conclude that uh, life is very rare. I mean, planets and life are very rare. But then he says, but maybe this model is wrong, you know, and so on. This was fantastic for me that, you know, even though he's not a scientist, 
he considers the possibility that the theoretical model that he was looking at could be wrong. Yeah, very, very impressive thinking for basically a, an intelligent science-interested layperson. Uh, you mentioned H.G. Wells in your essay uh, because Churchill wrote uh, his piece shortly after the, the famous War of the Worlds uh, Orson Welles broadcast. H.G. Wells, Orson Welles, no relation. Um, from reading Graham Farmelow's book about Churchill and the uh, effort by uh, the scientists in England to also develop a, an atomic bomb at the beginning of World War II, uh, it's clear that he and H.G. Wells actually had uh, at, at least a, a passing friendship and, and corresponded. Yeah, and, and he clearly read H.G. Wells. So, uh, But you see, unlike many people read H.G. Wells and many people he heard Orson Wells's radio program, uh, but un unlike the general public, which was you know, mostly fed by this science fiction literature or, or radio programming, uh, Churchill took this to the next level uh, to write an article that was more, you know, like a scientific article than, you know, just popular science. I, I don't know if you had this reaction, but it, it, it makes me, unfortunately, compare our, our current leadership and what they would be capable of doing, even within their areas of expertise, let alone outside their areas of expertise. Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm not a politician and I don't want to comment too much on politics, but... The thing is that you know you do get uh, a, a certain level of nostalgia to a time when you have you know somebody who is arguably the greatest statesman of the 20th century being so profoundly interested in science that he is even willing to you know to write articles about this and of course he has a science advisor and all that so. Um, the the lesson here, I think, is that you, when when you want to tackle problems that require science input, you, you need good science advisors. And and you also have to make the basic assumption that science talks about reality. Of course, I mean that science provides uh, you know facts, uh, and that those facts need to be considered. And the thing is, you see that irrespective of, you know, which politicians you're talking about, there is no question that humanity today is facing many challenges that require scientific input. I mean, whether it's climate change, whether it's uh, food resources, whether it's fighting diseases, not to speak, of course, of, you know, the basic curiosity that drives all basic research, you know, like, uh, we have still have not answered the question, are we alone in the universe, for example? Or, you know, how does human consciousness work and so on? So for all of those, you absolutely need scientific input. And uh, really, you know, only the right scientists can provide uh, that input for the right decisions to be made. Now, you also talk toward the end of the essay about uh, how even though he was a great supporter of science, he also knew that it needed to be tempered by humanistic values. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This was a big thing with him, especially later in life, because, you know, he lived through, you know, seeing what the atomic bombs have done. 
um, and and he realized that uh, you cannot just let science, you know, run free without uh, the context of everything that happens within a human society and culture. So, you know, he basically didn't want scientists to be operating in a moral vacuum. And so he wanted them to be informed by human values and uh, and, and humanistic subjects uh, to put things in the right context. Can you talk about just how you felt when you saw this essay for the first time? Uh, yes. Um, I, I was truly amazed. I mean, I cannot even describe to you. I mean, just seeing the title, you see, I mean, uh, the, when the director of the Churchill Museum, you know, told me, you know, I, there is an essay here I want you to take a look at. And he gave me a copy of this. And I saw, you know, that Winston Churchill writes about, are we alone in the universe? Uh, it, it was just to me astonishing. And then I said, okay, let me read it and see if I can make any comments. And once I read it and was extremely impressed by it, I came up with this idea that I would write this, you know, science article where I would compare today's thinking to, to you know, to his points at that time. So impressive. You know, certainly a, a man of his time, but somebody who really could see beyond his time as well. Right. And in, and in topics that are beyond, you know, what you might have thought that you would be interested in. Because remember, I mean, even his interest in science, it could have been that he would only be interested in those scientific subjects which, you know, made a contribution to the war effort, for example. But no, here he is interested in in something that clearly has no immediate applications whatsoever. It's just pure scientific curiosity. And, and, and yet, you know, he's interested enough to even write about this, let alone read about it. Yeah, one suspects that he had a mind that, uh, you know, to, to, uh, to crib from the descriptions of Newton that was never at rest. Right, right. Yeah, so any anything that uh, would be put before him, he would probably start to analyze in a very rigorous manner, just because that's the way he was. Correct, yeah. Uh, well, fascinating to talk to you about this. And uh, again, this is in the issue of Nature, the February 16th issue of Nature that actually uh, is published today, the 15th. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Mario Olivio's piece about Churchill's essay is available on the Scientific American website and the Nature website. I don't currently have good information about the availability of the Churchill essay itself. I'll provide updates in future episodes. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can also check out Annie Sneed's article about the efforts to use artificial intelligence to predict earthquakes. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 